On September 27, 1971, eight men from a chartered halibut fishing boat at anchor off the coast of Akatan Island in the Aleutians made their way in the vessel's dinghy to the rocky, barely populated shore. They wore identical hooded green jackets to guard against the wildly variable weather of those islands. And, taking the slightly improved morning cloud cover as a good sign, they started an impromptu expedition to the top of the 1,650-foot slope behind the village at Akatan Harbor. The group, made up of conservationists, journalists, and self-described environmentalists, set off, according to one account of that morning, with plenty of sandwiches and cigarettes. As they made the ascent up the treeless hillside of grass and lichens, they became more and more giddy about their mission of protest. The description in this particular work by Robert Hunter recounts that they laughed as they ascended in their green uniforms. The army of the landlord and the shock troops of the conservationist movement. Similarly, they are the green-hooded men, Captain Cormac's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Fellowship of the Piston Rings, the unofficial Canadian Navy, the Akatan branch of the Moody Blues Fan Club, the bearers of the One Ring of Ecology. One of the men shouted over the whipping wind, All power to the plants! Right on, someone else said. Who are we? And the answer comes, We're the Green Panthers! In a multi-page continuation of this orgiastic episode, which emotionally culminates in an expression of desire by the author to literally sexually penetrate lichens, it is clear that these men are more than just Sierra Club ecologists. They are the front line of the Don't Make a Wave Committee, a group that had, since the protests against the Milro test of 1969, made it their mission to sail to Amchitka and create a visible symbol of protest, bearing witness as the new bomb goes off. The weather drove them back down the hill, though not before a few more revelatory mind melds with moss, down to the waterfront village and the bay where their waiting vessel lay at anchor alone in the center of the water. The broad, green, decorative sail the men had hoisted as they left Vancouver was easy to see and easy to read. Below the ecology symbol and above a peace sign was written broadly, Greenpeace. The Otters of Amchitka, Part 3, Kanakin, 1971, and the Don't Make a Wave Committee. This time on the Cold War Vault. For as bad an idea as making love to the Arctic tundra might seem, these men, a few of the founders of what would become the international environmental powerhouse we know as Greenpeace, had really done something stupid. We'll get to that. The ship that they had chartered was christened the Phyllis Cormac. 
It was an 80-foot fishing vessel sailing from Vancouver, British Columbia. By all accounts, it had seen better days. The captain was an eight-fingered, nearly toothless halibut fisherman named John Cormack. He had lived through a few terrible seasons, owed a lot of money around town, and was facing foreclosure. He never let on that he was a little desperate, but when a gaggle of radicals, Quakers, long hairs, college professors, and journalists offered him $12,000 for a six-week charter, during which he would sail into Aleutian waters at a bad time of year, confront the might of the U.S. Coast Guard, the U.S. Navy, probably the U.S. Air Force, and anchor as close as he could to an armed thermonuclear weapon, Cormac took the deal. I want to remind everyone of the temperature of the times leading up to the events in this story. And it's a given that all of this takes place on a backdrop of Cold War tensions, social discord, youth movements, racial unrest, and the Vietnam War. With all of that going on, the anti-nuclear and environmental protests were also on fire. Between the 1965 longshot test on Amchitka and the 1969 Milrow test, tensions had only gotten worse. By the time of the planned 1971 Kanakin test, the largest underground nuclear detonation ever by the United States, those feelings of anger and will to resist the status quo had moved from the radical fringe into middle America. This was founded on the sense that the government had not only mismanaged Vietnam, but was prone to mismanage domestic issues as well. Mismanagement of environmental issues had been simmering for a decade. The spark is often cited as the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962. Support moved to an even wider demographic after the Santa Barbara oil spill of January into February 1969 and continued to grow in the aftermath of the Cuyahoga River fire of June 1969. That was something that seemed an unacceptable absurdity in modern America. The ongoing freeway revolts throughout the United States, Canada, and other countries offered another place to expand grassroots support around local environmental and community quality of life issues. Another major debacle I neglected to mention in the last episode, but is really important nonetheless, was the blocking of the construction of the Everglades jet port. That was an airport that would have been five times the size of JFK and the largest in the world. It was designed to handle supersonic long-haul airliners that Boeing had been contracted to build, but protest against the potential sonic booms and the effect of exhaust on the ozone layer meant considerable public pressure to cancel the project. Not to mention the ecological concern about paving 39 square miles of otherwise untouched Everglades. Plans were canceled in 1970. I should say, as a side note, that the airport does exist in a very withered way. It consists of a two-mile runway and a double-wide trailer.
Now that the five megaton Kanakin test had been made public, there was a rallying point for many forces. The ecological fears of 1965, the safety of the otters and the birds, and the geological fears of 1969, and the potential tsunamis now much increased because of the massive bomb yield and the general absurdity of citing a thermonuclear test range in a nature preserve. The Don't Make a Wave committee had been overwhelmed by the aggressive protests that met the Milrow test of 1969 and wanted to maintain the momentum. There was little trouble in making this happen. Here's a bit of a cultural side note. One of the biggest media coups pulled off by the Don't Make a Wave committee, remember, soon to be Greenpeace, was the organizing of a benefit concert in Vancouver with Joni Mitchell, Phil Oakes, and James Taylor as a surprise guest. It was billed as the counterculture event of the year, and it was the $17,000 profit that paid for the first Greenpeace charter to sail to Amchitka. You can still buy the album. I'll put the link in the show notes. Another one of my favorite cultural artifacts from this time is a widely distributed poster created by the Kodiak citizens against the Amchitka test that depicted the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding the crest of a tsunami labeled AEC. The horsemen were named Tidal Wave, Earthquake, Radiation Leakage, and Destruction of Fisheries, which certainly summarized the original ecological concerns. The general sense of anger began to come from different social classes and organizations. From the radical left to the working class to religious organizations, the political class. In May of 1971, William Egan, then governor of Alaska, called for hearings to be held about the possible environmental impacts of Kanakin, something the group Democrats for Issues and Action had asked of Egan's predecessor in 1969. This time, the Atomic Energy Commission actually agreed and set up a set of three-day public hearings in Anchorage and Juneau. In July, concern over Amchitka reached to the federal level, spurring on action by several senators, the most predictable being Mike Gravel of Alaska, who hadn't stopped trying to cancel the Amchitka test since Milrow in 1969. Gravel tried to block funding of the Kanakin test when the AEC appropriations bill was taken up in the Senate. On July 23rd, Maine Senator Edmund S. Muskie brought the issue of Kanakin to his subcommittee on arms control, international law, and organization. Muskie raised issues of the test's necessity and other environmental objections, including safety of the sea otter colony. Alaska Attorney General John Havelock joined the protest and testified in front of the subcommittee, where he stated that the government's handling of Kanakin had made a charade of the National Environmental Policy Act, and that the AEC's environmental impact statement required under the new law failed to specify the test's necessity. That meant it was in violation of the NEPA. A lawsuit was filed. Richard Nixon was vocally bitter about the protests and said in a telephone conversation with Henry Kissinger that it was a matter of national security and nobody's business. He said to Kissinger, 
one of these days they will enjoin the war on the grounds that it hurts the environment in Vietnam. Kissinger, as usual, agreed. But on September 27th, Nixon found himself in a kind of enemy territory and was confronted on two fronts by angry protests. Nixon landed in Alaska after a two-day trip to meet Japanese Emperor Hirohito to try to ease the strains which had been put on the relationship by Nixon's impending trip to China. Or at least that was Nixon's plan. Nixon began a nine-mile tour through downtown Anchorage and was met by anti-Kanakan protesters who lobbed objects and chased the motorcade in an angry mob. Happy to get through the gates at Elmendorf Air Force Base, Nixon met the Emperor and was immediately asked to cancel the Kanakan test on behalf of the entire Japanese government. The actual date of the Kanakan test was never publicly disclosed beforehand, though the most reliable estimates suggested that it would take place in late October or early November 1971. And so the protests that were organized became more fevered the closer those weeks came. But more importantly for our story, the more varied and international they became. The Ontario Federation of Labor voted at its Toronto convention to march on the U.S. consulate with its 1,000 attending members. On November 2nd, just four days before the blast, the 150,000 members of the British Columbia unions went on a half-hour work stoppage in support of the Amchitka protesters. Approximately 50 members of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in Princeton, British Columbia, actually continued working during the stoppage, but they donated their wages to the Don't Make a Wave Committee to support the Greenpeace mission. There was a similar reaction among Japanese labor organizations. The General Council of Trade Unions of Japan delivered a statement of protest to the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. The fishing industry in Japan's Iwate Prefecture, which was the closest to the test site, planned a massive protest for the final days. This was followed by a protest from Japan's largest organization of fishing firms, the Japan Fisheries Association which demanded that the United States provide compensation for any damage to the industry from Kanakin. In support of the fishing industry, a spokesman for the Japanese Foreign Ministry warned the United States that the test would seriously limit freedom of the open seas. The Japanese government expanded on the demand for damage compensation beyond the fisheries to any and all damage done by tsunami impact or radiation leakage. Canada had a standing demand for the same compensation. Workers in Vancouver marched to the U.S. consulate wearing hard hats and carrying peace signs and protest slogans. Ray Haynes, who was the British Columbia labor leader, explained the protest. He said, quote, Workers are downing their tools not over wages, not over working hours, and not over working conditions, but because of a danger to all mankind. In Toronto, the Ontario Federation of Labor issued a telegram to U.S. President Nixon on behalf of its 700,000 members. 
It denounced the blast as a threat to North American ecology. That same threat to ecology was cited by the Anglican House of Bishops when they voted on the 1st of November to unanimously oppose the test. Archbishop Edward Scott, the primate of the Anglican Church of Canada, explained the declaration as a response to the United States' disregard of any effect the test could have on society and the ecology. This declaration was mirrored by the United Church of Canada, which authorized the ringing of church bells across Canada, not only in protest of Amchitka and Kanakan, but directly in support of the crew of Greenpeace. Ah, the Greenpeace, the adoptive name of the Phyllis Cormac, back in Akatan Bay. On its mission to Amchitka, the Phyllis Cormac had been denied a berth at Dutch Harbor by the U.S. Navy, but the ship was allowed to move on to Akatan. Waiting in Akatan Bay for word on when the Kanakan detonation might take place, the days went by, and the ship never declared itself to customs. You see, the ship and most aboard were Canadian. Akatan is Alaska. The Greenpeace mission was an annoyance to the U.S., despite being a bright spark of protest for the rest of the movement, but it was a minor annoyance that could be easily dispatched. The Coast Guard had been watching. On September 30th, the Phyllis Cormac was approached and boarded by the Confidence. So begins a very, very interesting chapter in the spreading protests centered around nuclear weapons. The environment, ecology, policy, and everything else thrown into that basket by late 1971. First, the trap. Phyllis Cormac had to arrange for a customs inspector to come to Akatan. That would likely never have happened, at least not until after the Kanakin test, or the ship could turn around and go home illegally. The first mission of Greenpeace was over, just like that, and just like I said, for a stupid reason. However, during the boarding, something extraordinary happened. While the commander of the Confidence was in conference with Captain John Cormack, the crew of the boarding party waited outside and exchanged cigarettes and brandy with the Greenpeace protesters. During this exchange, the crewmen passed over a note typed on crumpled paper. The Greenpeace protesters took the note and offered gifts to the men of cigarettes and rum. It was later recalled that though they must have looked strange with wetsuits bloated in the shapes of boxes and bottles, their commander, Floyd Hunter, ignored the odd shapes, boarded the launch, and headed out into the night. All 18 Coast Guard sailors involved would be punished in the weeks to come, though the fines wouldn't amount to much. They ranged from $15 to $50. The Alaska Mothers Against Kanakin donated money to pay the fines immediately. Support also came from Senator Mike Gravel, who protested the punishment and demanded that the fines be rescinded. You see, the crew of the Confidence had not been punished for liquor or cigarettes, or what we might imagine were other unnamed gifts. 
They were punished for the note they passed over to the Greenpeace, signed by 18 sailors. It said, Due to the situation we are in, we, the crew of the Confidence, feel that what you are doing is for the good of all mankind. If our hands weren't tied by these military bonds, we would be in the same position you are in, if it were at all possible. Good luck. We are behind you, 100%. In the final days, the international condemnation of Nixon's decision to proceed with the test was at a fever pitch. The issue had been debated in the United Nations, and the test was officially and openly opposed by Canada, Japan, Sweden, Peru, Chile, Ireland, and angrily by the Soviet Union. In Canada, the 1969 border blockades were dwarfed by the 1971 marches by students, laborers, professionals, clergy, politicians. I think the situation is stated concisely but effectively in a telephone conversation between Henry Kissinger and Jerome Wiesner. Jerome Wiesner is the former science advisor to the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. He says, I'm calling you about the big Alaska shot. I'm getting a lot of pressure from people in this country, Canada and the UK. It seems to me that the president has one of those situations where, both nationally and internationally, a tremendous number of people are very upset. And indeed, the number was tremendous. While walkouts, sit-ins, and marches were similar to those staged against Milrow in 1969, the number in attendance had increased by an order of magnitude. On October 6th, a walkout was staged in Vancouver's secondary schools, involving 12,000 students, parents, and teachers. The protesters marched on the U.S. consulate in Vancouver. The Canadian House of Commons passed a nearly unanimous motion condemning the test on the 15th of October with only one dissenting vote. Particularly because of the odyssey of the Greenpeace mission, the Don't Make a Wave Committee saw an extraordinary influx in donations. The first Greenpeace mission had taken two years to plan and fund. The second was already being outfitted in Vancouver. Edgewater Fortune was a converted Canadian minesweeper, and it had been chartered for $12,000 plus $7,000 for fuel and supplies. It had been renamed the Greenpeace II. That vessel launched as a relief mission for Greenpeace on the 28th of October, 1971. This increase in last-minute popular support would be dramatized by the delivery of a massive petition to Washington, D.C. on November 4th. It contained 177,000 signatures. The physical petition was so large that Senator Mike Gravel gave his office over to house the document. The petition had been started on the 1st of November by a Canadian radio station and had 112,694 names the next day. It was still growing as it sat in Gravel's office. As tempers boiled, protests were not always peaceful. On the 1st of November, William Kelly, the United States Consul General in Winnipeg, was the target of a firebomb at his home. 
Kelly himself said that he was absolutely sure that the attempt was a protest against the giant blast. He was put under 24-hour police surveillance. On November 3rd, 3,000 protesters at the Blue Water Bridge border crossing in Sarnia, north of Windsor and Detroit, burned an effigy of Richard Nixon in the middle of the bridge and threw it into the St. Clair River. At the Windsor-Detroit Ambassador Bridge crossing, an additional 3,000 students stopped traffic for more than two hours. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, police were called out to monitor the situation at the U.S. consulate after threats from protesters to storm the building. The angry demonstrators met with Consul General William Kelly, still under guard after the attempted firebombing. On the day before the Kana contest, angry protests erupted outside of the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. Five survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings demonstrated outside the embassy, while representatives of a League of Atomic Bomb Victims attempted to storm the gates. The group clashed with police guarding the grounds. Later in the day, the Secretary General of the Japan Council Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs attempted to submit a letter of protest addressed to Richard Nixon. The group was told that those in charge were not available. Not to be dissuaded, the following day, with only hours left, 20,000 workers and students in Tokyo marched on the U.S. Embassy. The world was outraged, but there was no recourse. In the end, the legal challenge that had been the last hope for the opponents of Kanakin failed to win an injunction from the Supreme Court. Justice William O. Douglas wrote in the dissenting opinion, We plainly do not have time to resolve this question between now and the scheduled detonation. Five hours later, Amchitka felt the shock of the Kanakin test. A five-megaton thermonuclear bomb buried more than a mile beneath the muskeg. The crater heaved and subsided. It was a mile wide when it settled. Most nearby buildings were destroyed. The cliff sides near the site crumbled, killing nesting seabirds and dumping tens of thousands of tons of rock on the otters feeding below. We can never know how many otters died, but it was later estimated by the AEC to be thousands. The Edgewater Fortune, the Greenpeace II, never made it to Amchitka. A Conclusion Leaving Amchitka The two vessels returned to Vancouver, sure that the protest had been an utter failure, but discovered that the whole ordeal had been a public relations victory for the organization, for environmentalism and against the Atomic Energy Commission. Attention to these new environmental questions had grown from an Alaskan or Canadian issue to one of genuine international consequence. Public opinion had turned, and environmental activism had entered the mind of the public. Greenpeace would continue its seagoing campaigns against nuclear testing, setting out for the French test site at Muraroa Atoll in the South Pacific in 1972. There was another, more tangible victory, which came in the months after the Greenpeace protest. 
one which would solidify the sense that environmental activism and public education of environmental issues could have a real and tangible impact on policy. After the uproar of 1971, it must have been clear to the AEC and the Nixon administration that nuclear testing on Amchitka was unacceptable to both the local population and the international community. After Kanakin, no further tests would be conducted on the island. The decision had already been made at the time of Kanakin when the political resistance had spiraled out of control. After the test, the New York Times wrote, Elated AEC planning to quit Aleutians. Major General Edward B. Giller, the assistant general manager at Amchitka, said, It seems we will have no reason to require a second test. The seriousness of public sentiment is given some context at the end of that article. It says, Such a request for a second test would be certain to reopen a controversy between the military and environmentalists. That fight has been the most heated environmental fight since the oil well rupture in the Santa Barbara Channel. And with that, preparations for the abandonment of the island began. But additional tests on Amchitka had certainly been in the planning. Shafts at three other sites had already been drilled, but in 1971, progress on the last borehole was abandoned. Less than four months after Kanakin, on the 25th of February, 1972, official cleanup of Amchitka was announced and undertaken by the Atomic Energy Commission, and the environmental protesters in Vancouver and around the world declared the battle won. But the battle had been hard fought and had enduring impacts. The AEC would conduct only one additional nuclear test outside of the confines of the Nevada test site the relatively smaller Rio Blanco test in 1973, much to the satisfaction of the Soviets. And due in no small part to its complete incompetence in dealing with massive protest, the AEC was dismantled in 1974 with the Energy Reorganization Act. Along with the stated intentions of that legislation, the reorganization had the added benefit of creating a break with the past a psychological punctuation after an era which had given the agency a reputation for secrecy and mismanagement, particularly with regard to the period of its involvement with Amchitka, but really throughout its existence. The AEC had become a legacy agency from a different era of the Cold War. Nearly 20 years after the last Amchitka blast, Michael McCloskey, the executive director of the Sierra Club at the time of the Amchitka protest confided in an interviewer. He said, We were taken aback by the speed and suddenness with which the new forces exploded. In what, in retrospect, is radical and sudden, environmental destruction and nuclear war came together in a time and a place to create something new and powerful that would fuel protest for years to come and change the course of 20th century history. This episode and this series was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. 
Music you've heard on this episode was from PC3, Daniel Birch, and Blue Dot Sessions. If you're interested in learning more about this series or anything else you've heard on the show, come into the vault for show notes, images, and links. You can find it at coldwarvault.com. And if I forget to post something you've heard about, send me a message there. Or find the vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. You can listen to the show on all the major platforms now, and find it on iTunes, where liking and subscribing is the most powerful way to help. Be safe out there, wherever or whenever you are. Until next time.